This week's TribCast is sponsored by Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute's vision is for Texas to be the national leader in treating all people with mental health needs. Find out more at mmhpi.org. And Texas 420 Doctors. Learn how to talk to your loved ones about seeking relief with medical cannabis. Find out if Texas 420 Doctors can help you today at texas420doctors.com. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tribcast for December 16th, 2022. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of News and Politics for the Tribune. Today we're going to talk about two different topics. One, Texas's struggles with maternal mortality. Joining us for that conversation will be uh, women's health reporter Eleanor Klibanoff. Hey, Eleanor. Hey, Matthew. And later in the podcast, we will be talking with Alex Nguyen, a um, a, uh, Tribune fellow who has written about uh, Texas's marijuana laws. Hey, Alex. Hello. All right. So let's go ahead and get started first with Eleanor. Texas and maternal mortality, it's been something that has been on the minds of many of the state's kind of health leaders and officials for, you know, really the past decade, if not longer. And, you know, ever since 2013, the state has put out a biannual report kind of looking at the maternal mortality situation in Texas. That report has been in the news maybe even more than usual this time around because of the fact that it was delayed um, until this month, December, uh, raising a lot of concerns among Democrats about whether maybe it was possibly being delayed for political reasons um, to get it beyond basically the November election that featured our Republican Governor Greg Abbott against Democrat Beto O'Rourke. But finally, this report did come out this week. It came out yesterday. Eleanor, tell us a little bit about what picture it painted about the maternal mortality situation in Texas. Right. This report, um, as you said, is, you know, Texas has been looking into this issue of serious injury, illness and death from pregnancy and childbirth for a decade now. And this report shows that a lot of the same issues that plagued the state, you know, back in 2013 and even before that remain very prominent today. Um, a lot of the same trends. Um, pregnancy remains um, dangerous for women in Texas. Um, it remains extremely dangerous for Black women in Texas. Um, we see a lot of those same disproportionalities, um, even as Texas has made some improvements on specific types of maternal mortality and morbidity um, across the board. Black women are actually seeing certain factors get worse. So, you know, these disparities remain really front and center. And the task force's, you know, recommendations remain essentially the same um, as they have been of expand access to healthcare and expand the state's maternal health resources. So one of the statistics you cited in your story, severe medical complications from pregnancy and childbirth increased significantly between 2018 and 2020, surging from 58.2 cases per 10,000 deliveries in Texas to 727 cases per 10,000. So, I mean, we're talking about, and now I got to try to do some math right off the top of my head, but that's a, I mean, uh, what around like a 20% increase. Uh, I'm sure someone with a calculator will, will tell jump. me. We'll say it's a jump. Yeah. Yeah. A, a, a significant jump and a concerning jump because, you know, we expect 
medical care, medical outcomes to increase and to improve over time. What are the theories for why this is happening? Well, you're exactly right. And I mean, that statistic is specifically about morbidity. I mean, so often the thing that gets the headline is the number of women who are dying from pregnancy and childbirth, because obviously, you know, those are the most consequential cases. But there are so many women who are experiencing significant complications, significant illness, life-changing medical complications um, as a result of pregnancy. And that's what that morbidity is. And so seeing an increase in that you know, even if the number of women who have died isn't, you know, skyrocketing, but that's really concerning because those women, you know, are now having to parent while dealing with their own medical complications. So that increase is really concerning. And as you said, we expect these things to get better. The United States is the only country in the developed world where maternal mortality and morbidity is getting worse. So this is just like, and Texas has above average statistics on both maternal mortality and morbidity. So it's, a huge problem that's getting worse. I mean, the reasons are multifaceted. Um, you know, Texas does not have, um, you know, Texas is one of now at this point only 11 states that has an expanded Medicaid. Um, women are have less access to healthcare here than they do in other states, you know, before they get pregnant and after pregnancy. Um, and, you know, one of the factors, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, that was looked into for the first time this year was, you know, discrimination and um, these other issues that um, sort of are built into the healthcare system and can really hold back um, women from accessing comprehensive healthcare. Yeah. So, I mean, one thing that the Texas legislature did in the last legislative session, of course, was extend postpartum Medicaid by six months. That is, if I'm not mistaken, not reflected in this data, right? Because it's looking more more at 2019. Right. So this looked at cases from 2019. Um, and so sort of the saga of postpartum Medicaid is Texas for years has offered two months postpartum Medicaid. So after mm-hmm. you give birth, you can stay on Medicaid for two months. We know that, you know, over a third of postpartum I'm sorry, over a third of maternal deaths happen after that two month period. Mm-hmm. So last legislative session, the um, House voted to expand that to 12 months, which the federal mm-hmm. government was incentivizing. The Senate knocked it down to six months. Mm-hmm. The federal government has now said that six month application is not approvable. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really stuck in bureaucratic limbo. Mm-hmm. Um, so this 2019 data doesn't reflect that. But I will say right now we're sort of living through a case study of what happens when women get to remain on that Medicaid because no one has been kicked off of Medicaid since the pandemic began. Right. Um, and so we were hearing anecdotally, you know, stories of women who have been able to get, you know, life-saving medical treatment, um, been able to get all kinds of, um, you know, been able to better space their pregnancies, all of these things that contribute to maternal health um, that they've been able to access because they've been able to stay on health insurance. Indeed. You know, you, you have mentioned already the racial disparities here. The um, And again, just citing another stat from your story that is alarming is, you know, in 2013, Black women were twice as likely as white women and four times as likely as Hispanic women to die from pregnancy-related causes. Um, you cite, you know, preliminary ass- assessments of 2019 that suggest that those trends have continued. So let's get into it. I mean, what is happening here? Why are Black women so much more at risk of these complications and of death than than the other populations of the state? 
you know, a lot of it goes to things that are happening like long before a woman gets pregnant um, and like long before, certainly before, you know, she shows up in the labor and delivery unit to have that baby. I mean, a lot of this is like falls into what we call the social determinants of health, which is things like, you know, black women are, you know, facing, you know, across the board statistically are more likely to be, you know, um, uninsured, to be on Medicaid intermittently, to be, um, you know, dealing with, um sort of structural poverty and racism, these other things that make mean that like when they get pregnant, they are likely to be less healthy. When they are during pregnancy, they're less likely to access uh, medical care. When they deliver, they are, are more likely to be facing, you know, discrimination and other um, sort of issues with our medical system. Um, and then after they deliver, they are more likely to be, you know, losing that health insurance um, faster. So, a lot of this is bigger than maternal health. Um, just the stakes are so much higher when it comes to, you know, severe illness or death of a pregnant person or a mother. Sure. And yeah, again, I, I mean, I'm just kind of throwing statistics that you wrote back at you here, but, you know, obstetric hemorrhage, um, which was listed in the report as being the leading cause of pregnancy deaths. I mean, it highlight accounting for a quarter of the cases in, in the stats you highlight really show the disparities disparities here because there were fewer complications from such hemorrhaging overall, but among black women, they increased nearly 10%. So, I mean, is, does that kind of bear out more generally too, that, that outcomes seem to be getting better for certain kinds of people and worse for others? Right. Like we're just seeing that gap widen. And the obstetric hemorrhage is such a good example because that is an issue that the state decided to really focus on after the last report. So they did this like CDC funded program um, called the AIM bundles, where basically like they gave hospitals like the toolkits, the guidebook, the resources to address obstetric hemorrhage, because that's just like one of the things no one should be dying from. Right. Um, and they gave them the tools to fix it. They got the hospitals to implement it. 98% of hospitals in the state now implement this program and it's working. Like it is helping so much except for black women who are seeing complications increase significantly. So it's just, it is proving true that as maternal health, hopefully in Texas improves over time as a result of these recommendations that we may continue to see these disparities widen unless they're sort of really targeted intervention. Okay, so I, I want to talk one more thing about the, you know, you, you mentioned earlier the, 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 the concept of discrimination and how this is the first report in which that was a factor, but it basically found that discrimination contributed to 12% of pregnancy-related deaths in 2019. First of all, can you explain how, how does a finding of, how is a finding of discrimination reached in, 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 in research like this? Yeah, so this is a new tool. The CDC just in 2020 created this sort of category of maternal death or category of cause of maternal death. And the Maternal Mortality Morbidity Review Committee here in Texas created their own tool. Basically, they hold these cases up against and say, you know, did it meet these qualifications? And um, that's to make a finding of discrimination as a cause. Um, and it doesn't have to be just racial discrimination. Like there's all kinds of discrimination. Um, and they did not find sort of a cohesive trend among that 12% of cases. But, you know, I just talked this morning to Nakinia Wilson, who's the um, community advocate who serves on the committee. And she said, you know, 
this is likely the tip of the iceberg, right? These are the cases where there was clear cut, hard evidence of discrimination. It, it will be impossible to ever know, you know, fully how discrimination impacted a lot of these cases. And, you know, the important, you know, she was saying like, you know, she understands people need data to say like, this is the problem, but talk to women, talk to black women about their lived experiences. And like, you can see how discrimination has contributed to their own maternal health complications. So it's, um, this is a step in the right direction, according to Wilson, you know, to sort of start raising this as an issue, but it is hardly the full picture of how discrimination impacts maternal health in Texas. Right. And you hear about just, you know, this in, in all different areas of health, right, where sometimes uh, uh, Black people, Black women in particular, are found to have their symptoms or their, you know, what they're telling their doctors be doubted more than than white uh uh, patients or, or, or patients of other races as well. So as you mentioned, some of this specifically related to childbirthing, some of it specifically related or, or more generally related to just broader problems in our healthcare system and in our society as a whole. So what, let's talk about solutions here. I mean, you mentioned that this is, this is a report that is disturbing, but not surprising. And and one in which the findings seem to be kind of repeating themselves um, each each time that they come out. You know, there are small changes. There are things that are more disturbing in this one as such. But the what can we expect? Is there any kind of a discussion about like what can be done? And is there any reason to believe that some of the things that have been recommended in past reports might be viewed differently this time around? Well, so, you know, we talked about the postpartum Medicaid, which is just like the biggest, clearest to-do item um, based on mm -hmm. this recommendation. And, you know, um, Republicans have said, uh, you know, in the House, at least, that this is a top priority for them. And so I think that is something that, you know, if it doesn't happen this session, it at least will be, you know, a pretty knockdown, drag out fight to get that um, mm -hmm. uh, passed. Um, beyond that, like the Effort, a lot of efforts are working, right? These AIM bundles are working. Um, you know, they need to be more sort of consistently applied. And I think the big thing is getting all of our systems, but the healthcare system in particular, to sort of engage with this issue of the racial disparities. Um, I was talking to an OBGYN this morning who was saying, you know, if you ask any hospital system in the state if their doctors are racist, they will say no. And if you, but if you look at some of the charting, some of the details, some of the way some women are treated, there may be, you know, things that indicate racial disparities. And so it's a question of getting, you know, everyone to sort of be able to look this issue in the face and and deal with it versus feeling like it's, you know, sort of an attack on them or saying that they're racist, which is, you know, sort of a separate can of yeah. can of worms. Um, and then there's also a lot of attention just on this committee and what more they can do. I mean, there's um, uh, uh, questions about, you know, finding ways to add more community advocates, to add more diversity to the committee um, and to um, make their work. Um, uh, several of the advocates on the community would like these reports to be unredacted. They deal with redacted versions, um, which would really help them figure out like, where are the problems in this state? Where are the hospitals where women are more likely to die? And like, you know, we can try to fix this for the whole state because eventually, every, you know, every hospital may deal with a maternal death. But if there are a couple of facilities that are really 
struggling with these specific issues. Like let's get in there and fix those. And like, you know, as one of the doctors said, these are cases from 2019. So if this is a problem that's persistent in a hospital, that's continued for another three years since then. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I also wonder whether just the political atmosphere due to a, you know, the being in the legislative session, the first legislative session post the post Roe v. Wade, essentially, and whether Republicans in particular who might have been resistant to things like expanding uh, Medicaid postpartum to a year might feel a little bit more pressure on that, given, you know, a some of the political backlash we've seen to the overturning of Roe v. Wade, but b also just a need or desire to show that, OK, we got what we wanted here in terms of ending abortion. Now we need to show that we are committed to ensuring the health of, you know, the women who are giving birth and the the children who are born in this state, um, you know, due to the, the, the new laws we have in place. And that's, I yeah. guess, just remains to be seen. I, I want to talk just briefly about the delay here. I mean, can you just reflect on me now that we've seen the report on this this debate that kind of came up about the why it was delayed and whether that was a a a reasonable thing to do. Right. So it's sort of hard to know. I mean, the backstory here is that, you know, this report is supposed to be released September 1st. Um, originally, state officials said it would not be released until, you know, mid 2023, which obviously would make it useless for the legislative session. Um, there was a lot of pushback to that. Um, and they essentially, and they said they wanted to do that to finish the review of 2019 cases. After a lot of pressure, they accelerated that final review of these last couple of cases, concluded that nothing in those cases radically changed the findings and recommendations of the original report they had written and decided to go ahead and publish it um, with the incomplete 2019 cases. Um, you know, I don't think we'll ever know, uh, or at least we don't yet know if it was, you know, politically motivated. Um, the idea that, you know, many Democrats and advocates have said, you know, that the state didn't want, or Governor Abbott's office didn't want this released right before the election. Um, you know, seeing what it shows now, I mean, we've known for a long time these problems exist. The state has known for a long time these problems exist. I think it is, you know, whether or not that was the motivation, I think the idea that people care enough about women's lives to change their vote in the election, um, an election that ended up being, you know, a pretty significant win for um, Governor Abbott seems a little hard to believe. That doesn't mean someone wouldn't be motivated by that, but it does seem mm. like in hindsight, you know, this was not a report that was going to swing an election. Yeah, I mean, it's not a, a situation where um, people are particularly surprised by what we're finding. It's kind of confirming that the status quo that has existed for a while and that we suspected had continued remains in place, or at least remained in place in 2019 when a lot of those numbers were, were looked at. Right, right. All right. Well, thank you, Eleanor. Let's take a break and hear from our sponsors. Texas State Technical College's Money Back Guarantee Program reinforces our commitment to prepare and place highly skilled, technically competent students in the workforce. Learn more at tstc.edu. And the Texas Bankers Association is the state's voice and advocate for the banking industry and more than 200,000 bankers throughout Texas. Find out more at texasbankers.com. 
In the state of Texas, few things have shifted in public opinion quite like the the opinion around the state's marijuana laws. In May 2010, 27% of Texas voters believed that marijuana possession should not be legal under any circumstances. And only 14% said that any amount of marijuana for any purpose should be legal. By 2021, those numbers had essentially flipped. Now just 13% of people believe marijuana possession should not be legal under any circumstances. Basically, that number has been cut in by more than half. And 29% say it should be uh, legal for any purpose, uh, more than double the amount in 2010. If you add up the people who say it should be legal for any purpose, or that small amounts of it for any purpose should be legal, you're talking about 60%, uh, a pretty solid majority basically supporting marijuana being legal, at least in small amounts, a 27% believe it should be illegal for medical purposes, which means that almost 90% believe that basically the state laws as they are in place now should be changed or, or loosened in some ways. But in Texas, the expansion of marijuana access has largely run up against the roadblock of politics. Um, you know, there has been some slight expanding of medical marijuana, but it's still quite restrictive in the state. And the idea of, you know, legalizing or decriminalizing marijuana has has basically been a non-starter in the legislature. But what we have seen in recent years is that cities have been a bit more open to it. And not just the big cities like Austin and Dallas, you know, smaller cities like uh, Herker Heights, Texas, or or Denton, Texas, and places like that, uh, Colleen, San Marcos, Elgin, have all taken some kind of steps to, you know, decriminalize marijuana. But Alex, you have watched this and written a story recently about how even those efforts in those small cities where voters have approved ballot measures to, to loosen the laws, it's still not quite as simple as just voting and getting rid of it. Tell us about the example of Harker Heights, which I think is illustrative of the challenges that these cities have faced. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So on election day, um, the voters of Harker Heights voted to approve the ballot measure that would decriminalize marijuana, having small amount of where marijuana is by over 60%. Um, but just two weeks later, the city council there voted to repeal the whole ordinance around decriminalizing. Um, and then subsequently, the city manager said that, you know, this issues around decriminalization should be left to the state. Um, and, and the reasons that why the city council chose to repeal was because they say, this initiative violates state law and it hinders police officers. Um, and then since then, the organizers, um, Ground Game Texas, as well as local organizers, got a petition where hundreds of residents signed on to put this repeal onto a May referendum, which would pause the repeal and then revive the ordinance in the meantime. So basically, we have like a back and forth between organizers, residents, and the local government to keep this ordinance in place. So the, the issues around decriminalization is still kind of in play at Harker Heights in Bell County. Um, yeah, so I think it's kind of illustrative as the issues between uh, the will of the voters versus government enforcement of state law. Um, 
So in the Texas local government code, there is a statute saying that governing municipal bodies like city councils and police department uh, may not adopt policy that um, doesn't enforce, like that will not fully enforce laws relating to drugs. And that is the statute that the city is citing in terms in order to push back against this effort. But organizers and residents have also pointed to like Austin, for example, where the police department basically uh, essentially decriminalized back in July 2020 and voters here have um, codified that policies in May and they have been carrying out that policy for seven months now without any pushback from the state. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, basically what we're seeing here, right, is in cities big and small, it's, it's n often not uh, the actual city councils or the city governments bringing these issues and passing ordinances, although, you know, in, in some cases that can happen. What we're seeing is people bringing, you know, petitions mm -hmm. to put this on the ballot and then the voters, you know, by pretty large margins, right, voting to 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 decriminalize. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so I think the issues like, you know, they looked at the state legislature not seeing much success there yeah. and they're saying that like we will not wait for you to direct your feet on this issue any longer. Um, and another part of it is, you know, in other states that have legalized, a lot of that success has come from statewide ballots. Um, mm. But in Texas, because the legislature controls what gets on the statewide ballot in the first place, residents or Texans haven't been able to vote in the same way as like Maryland or even Missouri, where it's a more conservative state. Yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating just to see really across the country how this is passing you know, not just in, 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 you know, liberal or democratic run places, but in, in a lot of different places where they can see the idea of possibly getting tax revenue of this or just, you know, reducing uh, the policing of, of, of a drug um, in, in things like this. But, you know, and, and part of the situation here, of course, is that the state sets the laws, the criminal code, but it's up to the cities and for the most part, in some cases, sheriff's offices as well to enforce those laws right and and so the idea here is right we'll, we'll instruct our police departments not to to arrest folks who are, who are caught with small amounts but then there's also another interesting kind of wrinkle in here which is the the state's hemp laws which have been expanded which have in their own ways kind of complicated whether how and whether police can arrest people caught with marijuana can you explain a little bit about the hemp situation and and, and how that plays into here yeah, so in 2019, the state legalized hemp and the line between hemp, legal hemp and illegal marijuana is very like a very fine line. It's like the threshold is 0.3% THC concentration. And because, you know, hemp and marijuana are like just virtually indistinguishable by sight or smell mm -hmm. um, to bring evidence against possession cases, um, cities would have to run tests to figure out the concentration uh, of THC in the substance. And what we have seen um, is that without resources, like prosecutors across the state have delayed or dropped a lot of possession cases. Um, and some police departments have chosen to like really deprioritize um, citing or arresting cases involving low amount of marijuana. So Austin PD have done that since July 2020. 
Um, and so like with the HEM law, it is something that Ground Game Texas, which is like a statewide group, kind of co-leading the effort to decriminalize in these cities, say that that is like the crux of their reform movement is building on that uh, legalizations and the chain of event resulting from that um, to codify the police department decision to deprioritize and essentially decriminalize. Yeah, and it's an interesting kind of game of chicken here, which you referred uh, referenced a little bit earlier, where the state law still says something the state could try to kind of punish or enforce, you know, uh, that state law requiring the cities not to do it. But that would require, you know, an attorney general or a legislature taking action um, on an issue that's not very popular. Right. And and mm-hmm. when only 13 percent of Texans think that marijuana possession should not be legal under any circumstance, do you really want to be seen as the person who's coming in and saying you know, hey, cities, you can't do this. I think it's an interesting question. And as you note, cities like Austin have not kind of faced that pressure quite yet. Um, you know, maybe you don't want to get out in front of things and um, and go ahead and legalize because there might be some pushback there. But maybe maybe these cities are kind of taking the, the idea of, um, well, like, let's see if they really want to risk that kind of political damage of, of going out there and doing that. So what's what's the situation right now in those cities? I mean, if if you're in Harker Heights and you get pulled over with a a, a small bag of, of marijuana, are you are you at risk of arrest right now? I think in Harker Heights, because um with the petition, I think they're still in the process of certifying the signatures. Mm-hmm. Um so they headed in hundreds of signatures. The requirement is 350 verify signatures to get it on the ballot in May. And so right now, I'm not too sure if the city has finished certifying those signatures yet. So, um, but once that is certified, then the ordinance that decriminalized marijuana possession would come back into effect. Um, So right now, it's a little bit unclear because I haven't double checked with them yet about whether they have fully finished that process yet. Um, but in other cities, for example, in Colleen, which you know sits next door, basically, yep. um, the city council there removed a clause that banned police from using marijuana smell as a probable probable cause for uh, search and seizure. So. That is still in effect, but issues around um, having small amount of marijuana or having, you know, a related drug paraphernalia, like that is not something that police can um, cite arrest people for having. Um, and the city still has a clause about, you know, they can't use city funding to fund THC concentration tests. Yeah. Um, Very good. Okay. Well, can what are the people you're talking to about this, particularly the advocates trying to expand these laws? What is their level of hope for any kind of change in the next legislative session? I think I there would prefer the state to pass uniform laws just because as we have seen, there have been different responses from different city officials about how they want to enforce the law in their own cities. Um, but at the same time, they have looked at the makeup of the legislature and they're not feeling too 
optimistic about it. Obviously, like state legislators that um, have long advocated for reforms are bringing bills to the upcoming legislative session. For example, Rev Moody um, has already brought a bill that would that seek to reduce the penalty against having one ounce of marijuana and also allow for record expungement in certain cases. He brought a similar bill in 2019 that got bipartisan support in the House, but then it died in the Senate under Dan Patrick. Um, Dan Patrick is still presiding over the Senate this Mm -hmm. time around. So we'll see where that goes. But Moody himself is optimistic. So we will also see where that goes. Um, But for organizer, I think their strategy at the moment is continues to break new grounds across the state. Um, they already have a campaign in San Antonio to do the same thing. Um, they're currently gathering signatures there to put a similar proposition on the ballot in May. Um, so voters there will decide whether or not to decriminalize marijuana. And then that charter also includes proposition about decriminalizing abortion and banning chokeholds and no-knock warrants in um, most instances by police. Um, but yeah, so we'll we'll keep seeing both the local efforts and we'll see how the legislature um, deals with these bills in the upcoming session. Well, thank you, Alex, for that discussion. And thank you to our producer, Justin. And thank you to Eleanor as well. We are out of time today. And also thank you to our sponsors, the Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute, Texas 420 Doctors, Texas State Technical College, and the Texas Bankers Association. We'll talk to you all next week. Talk to you